Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today is day seven in our 12 Days of Christmas essay series. And today, I'm talking about James Baldwin's essay, Notes of a Native Son. The 12 essays that I'm talking about in this series of the History of Ideas haven't been chosen because they have some theme that connects them. They're all pretty different, though, as I read them and think about them, I'm struck increasingly by how much does connect them. But there are three in the series that have a more direct connection than that. They form a kind of trio within the broader story. And one of those three is the essay that I'm talking about today. It's in the middle of that trio. The three are Thoreau on civil disobedience, today's essay, James Baldwin, Notes of a Native Son, and an essay I'm going to talk about at the end of this series, Tanahasi Coates, the case for reparations. And what these three essays have in common is that they are about the legacy of slavery in the United States, what it meant, what it continues to mean for black Americans, and what it means for the idea of America. I'm going to try and draw that more explicit connection when I get to Coates's essay at the end. But it's also true that today's essay, Baldwin, Notes of a Native Son, connects with some of the essays I've been talking about more recently. It's an essay about a country at war, America at war, just as George Orwell's The Lion and the Unicorn was about the English at war. What does it mean? And it's the same war, the Second World War. And it's about a year, 1943, which was the year in which Simone Weil wrote and died. The difference, though, is that Baldwin, unlike Weil, unlike Orwell, who were in the middle of the thing they were writing about, Baldwin is writing with hindsight. The essay was written in 1955, 12 years later, when he had turned 30, writing about his experiences as a young man aged 18, 19. And it's not an essay about a whole year, 1943. It's about a day during that year, 24 hours really, 1st, 2nd of August, 1943, when four things happened at the same time and in the same place. The place is Harlem in New York. And the four things that happened shaped Baldwin's life, but also, as he tells this story, make sense of the story of America. On the 2nd of August, 1943, it was James Baldwin's birthday. It was the day he turned 19. It was also the day of his father's funeral. At his father's funeral, his mother was not present. And the reason that she couldn't be there was she was in hospital because she had just given birth to her ninth child. Baldwin's eighth sibling. And while all that was going on, outside the church in which his father's funeral was taking place, there was a riot happening. One of the most serious riots that took place in America during the Second World War, what is conventionally called a race riot, it broke out in Harlem and it laid waste to the area around the church and where Baldwin had grown up and where he had lived. 
A birthday, a birth, a death, a riot. This essay is about how those four things are connected. At the heart of it, though, is the story of Baldwin's relationship with his father. In the essay, he never says that this was in fact his stepfather, though it was. David Baldwin was not James Baldwin's biological father. He never knew his biological father. His mother had her son, her first son, James Baldwin, when she was young. The father was effectively unknown. But soon after she had that child, she married. David Baldwin took his name and James took his name too. And with her husband, she had eight more children. David Baldwin grew up in the American South. He was the child of someone who had been a slave. His mother was a slave. So he was only one generation away from the direct experience of American slavery. He grew up in New Orleans before he moved north, eventually settling in New York. It was the New Orleans, as he liked to avoid saying, that Louis Armstrong grew up in too, but he didn't want to have Louis Armstrong in the house because it reminded him of his childhood. And as described by his son, James Baldwin, David Baldwin was a very frightening man. He was a tyrant, a tyrannical father. He was cruel, capable of great cruelty. He was austere. He was reserved. And his children were genuinely scared of him. All of them were scared of him. James Baldwin, as the eldest, he never makes anything of the fact he's the only one who is not actually the son of this man. He treats him throughout as his father. But as the eldest, he also, in some ways, was the intermediary between the other children and their frightening father. It was his job to stand up to him, and occasionally he tried. He was frightened of him too, but as he says in this essay, it wasn't just fear. It was fear that also turned into hatred. He hated his father. And Baldwin's descriptions of that relationship tap into a whole set of universal themes that will be recognisable to people from across different kinds of literature, fiction, non-fiction, in all sorts of different settings, not just America, not just black America, recognisable as a universal theme of literature, the relationship of children and their frightening father. In the essay, Baldwin describes the experience of being a child in that household and doing homework with a father who wanted to help. He was a preacher, he was a labourer, he was a man of words, and he wanted his children to be educated, but he wanted to help educate them. And he would help them with their homework, and it was terrifying. And because it was terrifying, he would ask them to do their lessons, to answer questions, and they were too scared to answer. The answers disappeared in the face of the fear which made the father angrier. And it's like a scene from Dickens's David Copperfield. That is one of the scenes of David Copperfield, the young David with his stepfather, Mr. Murdstone, another terrifying man who is determined to educate his child. And he gives him his lessons and David Copperfield tries to learn to please his father. But when he faces his father and is aware of his wrath, the answers disappear, the numbers vanish, and he can stammer nothing which makes his father so mad he beats him, which means the next time that it happens, it's even more frightening and the answers are worse and they get trapped in a cycle that has no good way out. And Baldwin describes something similar. He also describes an experience at his father's funeral, which is a kind of universal experience. Many readers, maybe something like all readers, will recognise an aspect of this. He is sitting in a church 
listening to his father being eulogised by another preacher, and thinks, I don't recognise this man. I don't recognise this person. Who is the man who is being described here as a good Christian, as a peaceful man, as a patient man? That's not my father. It's not even someone I can recognise as having a resemblance to my father. And yet, Baldwin thinks, maybe that means I didn't know him. Maybe that means the man that I knew as his child was not the whole man, the real man. Or maybe it means that the eulogy is a lie, and that all eulogies are a kind of cover-up of the truth. That's also an experience that many readers will understand. The writing echoes fiction as well as non-fiction in all sorts of different genres. To me, it was a little reminiscent of James Joyce's Dubliners. There were moments of the funeral that I could imagine in a completely different setting. Baldwin arrives at his father's funeral drunk. It's the only way he can get through it. And as he sits there, he suddenly thinks that his breath smells of whiskey. And he starts to imagine that the whole church must be smelling of his breath. The whole church must be full of the incense of whiskey breath. And he describes seeing his siblings, some of whom are still very young and scared, going up to their father's coffin and just being struck by the fact, presumably they were all wearing shorts, that their legs are so tiny. What children have to keep them upright in the world are nothing but these tiny legs. But alongside these universal themes, there is a strong sense that this story is not universal and it can only be understood through a particular experience, the black American experience. And Baldwin also writes about things that do not translate universally because they belong to him, to his family, to their history, and to Harlem. As he sits in his father's funeral, he starts to think about the reasons for his father's character and some of the things he may not have understood or may have misapprehended about the nature of the fear that his father inspired because he does begin to understand that one of the things that his father was trying to do was to protect his children from the worst things that lay outside the home, the greater dangers, the greater cruelties. Baldwin finds himself posing the question, and I quote, how to prepare the child for the day when the child would be despised. And that, he comes to understand, was part of how his father saw the job of raising these children, to give them, as Baldwin puts it, an antidote to the poison of the racism that will surround them throughout their lives. And any antidote to a poison may well itself be a kind of poison. It may be poisonous to spare you from the worst poison, the greater danger that lies beyond the home. And his father's cruelty in that light could also be understood as a kind of protection. He was trying to keep his children alive And Baldwin says, children don't understand that. It's quite hard to get a child to appreciate that the parent has done a good job simply by keeping them alive because any child will take its own life for granted. Otherwise, the child wouldn't exist. But Baldwin, who is turning 19 on this day, and part of the beauty of this essay is he writes as though he were in some ways still a child and in some ways no longer a child. He begins to understand it. His father was trying to protect his children, a man who grew up with knowledge of slavery in the American South, from a world in which there are far worse dangers than anything that will befall them at home. He was trying to help them with their homework. In his aloofness, in his desire to protect them from 
their neighbours, there was also a desire to keep them safe. And Baldwin also begins to understand his father's paranoia. His father was an extremely paranoid man, suspicious of those neighbours, black and white, and of their children, suspicious of people who tried to help, suspicious of people in official positions, suspicious of institutions. All of that paranoia was grounded in something that did make a kind of sense. It was part of the desire to protect, to keep the family safe. Sometimes paranoia is the rational response to circumstance. And the way Baldwin describes it and the way he reflects on his relationship with his father in the light of it is heartbreaking. It's deeply moving. He doesn't spare his father in this essay. The hatred comes through and at various points the contempt as well. But it's also a sympathetic account of a man lost trying to do the right thing. The young James Baldwin was a bookish child and that was part of his rebellion against his father. His father was a preacher, but his father was also very suspicious of ideas. The young James Baldwin loved theatre, and he wrote a play as a child. And one of his teachers, one of his white teachers, spotted this play and wants to take James Baldwin to the theatre. And Baldwin knows that his father will be horrified, horrified by the idea of the theatre, but also horrified by the idea that a white teacher is somehow taking an interest in one of his children. This can't end well. And he wants to prevent it. But Baldwin, though he's still a child, understands that the way to confront his father and get what he wants is to play on his father's fears. His father is afraid of people in authority who are white, at the same time as wanting to protect his children from them. So if he can get this white teacher into the home, this young white woman into the home, he knows that his father will not be able to stand up to her, even as his father will be seething with anger at the fact that he can't stop his child from going out into the world with this woman. And that's what happens. His father can't prevent it. And as a result of that, the bookish Baldwin is allowed to become more bookish. But at the same time, his father can't forgive it. And he even can't forgive it when this woman, as Baldwin says, turns out to be a great benefactor of the family. The family are poor. It is hard to keep this family together. And this teacher, who becomes very fond of James Baldwin, helps. And Baldwin's father can't bear that. Can't bear the help. Can't stop it. The paranoia extends right up to his death. David Baldwin died in 1943 as Simone Weil died in 1943, of tuberculosis, of TB, the great killer. And like Simone Weil, though for different reasons, he stopped eating. He refused to eat. In his case, it was because he came to believe that the food was poisoned. In his paranoia, he became suspicious of everyone, including the members of his own family. So ultimately, he died believing that the people who were trying to help him were trying to kill him. And as Baldwin says, this was such an extension of his life that many of the people around him, including the members of his immediate family, didn't realise how sick he was because they thought it was just him being him. His ravings, his madness, his suspicions seemed like an extension of his normal personality, whereas what he realised once his father died is that actually they were symptoms of a deep, a terminal, mortal sickness. But people couldn't see that because all they knew was the man that they feared. And while all this is going on, and Baldwin is reflecting on this, on a life that was lived trying to protect children from what lay outside the home, 
Baldwin is acutely conscious of what is happening outside the church. Not just that another child is being born, the ninth one that this man helped bring into the world, born the day he dies, but also that there is a riot taking place, a riot taking place in Harlem, a race riot, fueled by fear and anger among black Americans about what is happening to them. And this is the story of America at war. The riot that takes place and that Baldwin sees evidence of literally as he steps out of the church. And like so many great essays, this essay is also the description of a journey or a series of journeys. Baldwin returning home for his father's deathbed, going to the church, from the church to the burial ground, and on the way to the burial ground, seeing Harlem full of broken glass, shop fronts open, goods on the street, evidence of Extreme violence, though in the case of this riot, not a lot of violence against people. It was violence against property. The white businesses of Harlem were attacked and smashed, and some of them looted. And Baldwin sees evidence of this all around him as he steps outside the church where his father's funeral has taken place. And this essay is about drawing that connection. The riot that happened was sparked by an incident that took place in Harlem the night before, when it was said that a white policeman shot and killed a black soldier. In the stories that were told in the immediate aftermath of this incident, it was said that the black soldier was shot in the back by the white policeman and the black soldier had been trying to protect a young black woman from abuse when the white policeman intervened and shot the protector. It turned out that a lot of this was just rumour, that the soldier was not actually killed, though wounded, he was not shot in the black. It was not as described at the time as incident of valour being interpreted as violence. But none of that mattered. What mattered about the bare bones of the story? White policeman shoots black soldier. And after all, these are two men potentially armed with guns, but only one of them is shooting the other, is that it represented the clash between the two Americas, the two Americas that were simultaneously at war, at war overseas, but also at war with each other. The black soldier represented the America that was fighting and seeking to defend itself and an idea of freedom for which young black men were expected to die. They were being conscripted, they were being trained and sent overseas they were being armed, they were being used as instruments of violence to defend an idea of America and an idea of freedom, a great collective endeavour. As American citizens, they were part of that collective endeavour. And yet, here was one of those American citizens being, as it was said at the time, shot to death by the representative of a different America, a white policeman who represented white power, white supremacy, the racial hierarchy of American life, the impunity of white violence, and the fact that a soldier, who in one context is being treated sufficiently an American citizen to be someone who can be expected to die for America, dying for the other America, for white America, because he's not being treated as a citizen, he is simply being treated as a threat. These were the two Americas. There are lots of different ways to describe them, the crudest, but it has force in the context of this essay, is this is North and South. And the war highlighted a great unspoken feature of American life in this period. And this is the period of the Franklin Roosevelt administration, 
the FDR years, the years of the New Deal, of a new contract for America, a kind of progressive politics of hope for the future, and then the great collective endeavor of the Second World War, that America living alongside and containing within it the other America, the America of the South, of white violence, white supremacy, racial hierarchy, and the treating of black citizens as though they were not citizens, the stripping of their rights. And it is a story that runs through the FDR years. It is rarely there on the surface, but it's easily uncovered in the great histories of the period. The New Deal itself was a kind of fatal compromise with the American South, because Roosevelt was a Democrat. He was a Democrat president. And the Democratic Party was the party of the South, not of the North. And it was a party whose electoral success depended on appeasing, pandering to the elected representatives of the Southern states who would do anything to protect their right to establish their own hierarchies of race within their own states. And so two forces in American political life were at war with each other, an unspoken war, and yet somehow had to be combined, and it was part of Roosevelt's genius, if that's one word for it, to combine them. The idea that great collective endeavours, progressive endeavours, and the New Deal is still, for many people, the model of progressive politics. The Green New Deal harks back to the idea that it is possible to transform the way an economy is run to make it fairer, to make it more democratic, to make it more sustainable. In the aftermath of the Great Depression, the New Deal for many Americans, black as well as white, but mainly white, represented hope. And yet the only way Roosevelt as president could get the New Deal through Congress, because he needed the votes of Southern senators and Southern congressmen, was to allow that none of these great collective progressive projects would unravel the racial hierarchy of the South, which had to be separate and for Southern politicians, sacrosanct. So trade unions would not be integrated and work projects would not lead to integration. And the rights that were given to ordinary Americans could nonetheless be curtailed in the South, where Southern state politicians could still decide their scope. And Roosevelt had to acquiesce in that, because otherwise he couldn't do any of it. There was no way to do it democratically, that is, through Congress. The only alternative would be to do it dictatorially, to try and do it by executive power and executive veto. But to do it collectively as a democratic project required acquiescing with the priorities of the American South. And what was true of the New Deal was just as true of the even greater collective American project, which was to fight and win the war against fascism. The war that America had joined at the end of 1941, so we're in the middle of 1943, we're only 18 months into this war. It's a war in Europe, it's a war in the Pacific, it's a war against German fascism, it's a war against Japanese fascism. It is a war for freedom. It is the embodiment of an idea of America it's that idea that black Americans were expected to die for. And yet it could only happen, Roosevelt could only command democratic assent for it by also saying to Southern politicians and Southern states that it would not result in the federal government overriding their state rights. The great fear of those politicians was that great national projects would empower the federal government past the point where the federal government could override 
state rights. And so there was a constant delicate balancing act. Keep empowering the federal government so that these things can happen at all. There is no New Deal. There is no war effort without it being a national federal effort, but not past the point that Southern consent is withdrawn because it looks like it's the beginning of the unravelling of Jim Crow and the Southern racial order. Part of the deal that was struck that allowed the war effort to be a great democratic effort was to allow the South to play a full part in mobilisation and training of the armed forces without at the same time insisting that federal power extends to supervision of that. There was a deep memory in the South of Reconstruction, which was remembered as a period where the North simply took over and tyrannised the South. The fear of a great mass national mobilisation is that it would bring Northern military power back into the South. So the South and Southern politicians had to insist that military power in the South, the mobilisation, training and arming of America's soldiers, had to happen on Southern terms. And so in a way, what that meant was North and South during this war were forced together, but they were forced together mainly on Southern terms. And that led to what Baldwin describes as the fear and anger behind this explosion of rage on August the 2nd, 1943, the riot in Harlem. He talks about a city, New York, that is covered in posters, patriotic posters, championing this war, reminding people what they are fighting and dying for. This is a war for freedom. But the way it's characterised is a war against the yellow peril, the Japanese who are described in racial terms. That's the description of a war for which people of colour, black Americans, were expected to die. And black Americans noticed that the war for freedom was also a racist war. But that wasn't the primary driver. There is in this essay, a line that, when I read it, made me stop and put the essay down for a minute or two, because it is so arresting, in its way so shocking. Baldwin describes the fear of black parents. This is in the context of his father's funeral and his beginning to understand the kind of fear that drives black parents as he moves from being a child to an adult. The fear of black parents having their sons conscripted and sent to the South to be trained. Northern black Americans who have escaped the South, many of them, many of their parents have literally escaped the South and moved North. Now their sons are being sent back to the South in order to be trained and armed with guns, but also to be trained by white men with guns. And the line that made me stop was when Baldwin says, he is aware in Harlem, in New York, among black American families of, I quote, their peculiar kind of relief when they knew that their boys were being shipped out of the South to do battle overseas. The relief they felt when their sons were fighting the Japanese or the Nazis, rather than having to do battle while being trained in the South. And part of what motivates that, as Baldwin says, is the sense that their children may be killed, but there are two ways they may be killed. And that's why a black American soldier being shot by a white policeman was so incendiary. One way you can die as a black American soldier in the Second World War is overseas, fighting for your country. And that is at least 
a death that will be celebrated. It's a tragedy and it's a horror, but at least it is something around which everyone can agree there is honour. And then there's the other kind of death, the death that can befall young black men in the American South, lynchings and murders and being shot by the police, deaths that will be covered up, deaths that will not be celebrated by anyone, deaths that will be hidden, deaths that will never reach the news. Better to be overseas and at least facing the prospect of the first kind of death than to be trapped in the American South and risking, as all young black Americans risked in the American South, the second kind of death. For these black American parents, the Nazis and the southern states weren't that different. It sounds shocking to say it. Not only were they not that different, they knew which ones they would rather their sons were fighting. And in spotting the equivalence and the idea that there is a a double danger here in this great American war effort, they weren't wrong. Hitler was not someone who spent much time looking around the world trying to find models of government that his country could copy. He was unsurprisingly something of a German chauvinist. But there was one political order that he genuinely admired and spoke of admiringly, and it was the Jim Crow order of the American South. Hitler thought that was one way to run a nation, overt, explicit racial hierarchy, backed up by the ostensible rule of law, but actually reinforced by arbitrary violence. Hitler admired Dixie, and black American parents understood the equivalence. So the North was forced back into the South, and eventually, in Harlem, that produced an outburst of rage and a riot. It only lasted for a day and a night, but it was, as Baldwin describes it, an uncontained and uncontrollable sense of outrage. And the other thing happened too. So not just that the North was forced back into the South, but the South came North. And this is the other side of what Baldwin describes in this essay. The other great set piece in this essay, alongside his father's funeral, it comes earlier in the essay, and it's Baldwin describing the weeks and months that led up to his father's death. Because Baldwin says, unlike his father, who knew the South and knew what it meant, he, the young James Baldwin, growing up in New York, didn't know it, didn't have first-hand experience of it. Of course, he had experience of discrimination and racism, but not the Southern kind, the overt, simmering violence of the Southern kind, until the war. Because the other thing that the war meant, just as the South got as part of the deal to do the militarization through the army, through training camps, through the organization of the American armed forces, the North, as the industrial powerhouse of the United States, did the manufacturing side of the war effort. The great industrial plants, the war plants, the great defence industries, many of them were based in the North, and they required manning too. So just as black Americans from the North were sent South to be trained, white men from the South who were not in the armed forces, many of them were sent North to work in the defence plants. And Baldwin worked in one of those defence plants too, in New Jersey, outside of New York, but not far. There, Baldwin encountered something that he had never encountered before, not directly, Southern racism. He might have read about it, he might have heard about it from his father, but at some level, he didn't really believe in it. 
He knew about discrimination and racism, but not this kind. Other people he worked with did understand it. He was 18. He was a bookish child. He was idealistic. He was also quite arrogant, as he describes it. And he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that he was working with people who would not speak to him because he was black. And he couldn't believe he was working in an environment where there were people who would refuse to serve him because he was black, as though this were the American South, an informal but ruthlessly enforced racial segregation. And when he was confronted with this in the months before his father's death, so in the last months during the time when he was 18 and he worked for a year in this defence plant and he said he was constantly getting into trouble and having to be bailed out of trouble because he didn't take kindly to authority. The thing that most shocked him was discovering that there were places that would refuse to serve him a cup of coffee and a hamburger because he was black. And he would go to these places demanding to be served and waiting to be served day after day. He wouldn't accept it. He wouldn't just acquiesce in this. He wasn't for making the great fateful compromise. He wanted to stand up to it. One day he goes to what he says, pointedly, is called the American Diner. It was a place called American Diner. So it was a diner for America and for Americans. It was a quintessential American place. He was part of the great war effort for this America. And the diner was where the workers in the war effort could go to eat, but not James Baldwin, because James Baldwin was black. And in this diner, and I have to use his language here, I'm quoting Baldwin, he was told, we don't serve Negroes. And that day, and he says in part because it was called American Diner, it sends him mad with rage. He understands this rage and he is overtaken by it. And that day, that night, he leaves the American Diner and he is determined to confront this in the most extreme way he can. So he leaves the diner and against the advice of his friends who are trying to take him home, he marches into a grand hotel where he knows they will not serve a young black man. Not in a million years will they serve a young black man. And he goes in there determined to sit down and to be served. And he takes his seat on his own at a table in this restaurant. And as he describes it, everyone else reacts with horror. And he waits and he waits and he waits to see what will happen. And as he describes it, he is overtaken by a kind of physical rage. He knows what he is doing is extremely dangerous, but he can't stop himself. He describes himself in the grip of something over which he has very little control. And the word for it is anger. And eventually, a young white waitress comes up to him and says, we don't serve Negroes here. And in his rage, he picks up a glass water jug. And he says, this is how he describes it, he hurls it at her head and she ducks and it smashes on the wall behind her. And the effect of this is to break him out of his spell, but also to awaken in all of the people around him a murderous rage of their own. And he quite quickly realises that he may well now be killed. He has put his own life at risk and if not killed, at the very least, seriously beaten if he can't get out of this place. So he runs, having not done the thing he came to do, but having done the thing he felt he had no control over. The smashing of the glass means that he has to run. And so he runs and he just about escapes with the help of his friends and he gets home. And he realises that what he did was crazy, unbelievably dangerous, 
and he felt he had no choice. It is a terrifying incident. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In this essay, which is so different in so many ways, from another essay that I talked about, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, there are still striking echoes. And I'm not the only person who has spotted this, that there is an essay in the London Review of Books, which we will share the link to, which makes the same point. Woolf, in her essay, describes the experience of being a woman and having to see your status reflected in the attitudes of the men who need you to be subservient in order to justify their status and therefore are driven by anger and rage in their desire to maintain that gap because it is the only way they can justify their own, to their mind, superiority over you. So as a woman, what you experience when you see how men behave to you and write about you and organise your life as a woman is that it is done to shore them up. And the weirdness of that experience is the way they shore themselves up is through anger, is through rage. And Baldwin, in this essay, writes about the experience of being a young black man in similar terms, and also of coming to understand his father's experience of the world. What has it been like, he comes to think, to have lived a life like his father's life, so determined to hold on to a sense of self in the face of the relentless breaking down of that sense of self, by a world which only treats you as a cipher for its own sense of its justified superiority, and that when anything happens to threaten that, reacts with violence and rage. To hold on to yourself, your idea of yourself as an individual under those crushing circumstances, is an experience that pairs you down to your core. And in the case of Baldwin's father, it made him a reduced human being, incapable as Baldwin describes it, really of love, though this was motivated by a kind of love, a love for his children and for his family, incapable of trust, for sure. 
always covering up his own fear with his own anger. In Wolf's description of how men, anger and power go together, you can hear a foreshadowing of Baldwin's description about how being white and anger and power go together. But in lots of ways, these aren't the same accounts and they're not describing the same thing and they're certainly not doing it in the same way. I think there are two primary differences. The first is that Baldwin is experiencing a whole different range of power dynamics at the same time and he is at the intersection of a host of these. There is, there is no simple story here and this is not just a simple story of black and white. I'm not saying that Wolf's is a simple story of woman and man, not least because of the ways in which in the end she's striving towards a kind of androgyny. But in the case of Baldwin's essay, there is a more complicated range of intersections happening. He is writing as a gay man, but that is not actually part of this essay. If it's there, it's buried quite deep beneath the surface. Baldwin's later writings are absolutely emblematic and for many people, profoundly influential in the evolving history of gay literature. But not on the whole, I think, this one. There are just the faintest hints of it in his relationship with his father. His father wants him to be a preacher. He wants to be a writer. He's interested in art. And there's just a hint there that there's something deeper going on in the division between them. He's writing as a young man, as a black man, as a gay man. But he's also writing as a man. This is the story of a black man in America in 1943. And that means he stands at a different intersection of the relationship between power and anger and violence. Virginia Woolf, in A Room of One's Own, which is not really a book about violence, does nonetheless write about the violence that men meet out against women when she describes Shakespeare's sister. She talks about what her fate would have been had she tried to write, and it would have been literally to be locked up in a room, to be dragged around that room by her hair, to be beaten by her father, to be subject to physical coercion. But she doesn't write about women's violence against men. That is no part of her subject. Baldwin writes as a man who is both at risk of extreme violence and also capable of violence at a time when young black men are both potentially going to be shot by white policemen and also being armed and sent overseas to shoot Japanese people or Germans. The men in this story, the young black men in this story, are at incredible risk of violence and they are also treated as the potential agents of violence. That's why they're soldiers. Baldwin is not a soldier. He's working in a defence plant. But he still writes about his own propensity for violence. And it seeps through the essay. He sits in a church while there is a riot going on outside. And the riot is separate from him. And it's certainly separate from the funeral. The funeral is not a violent occasion. And yet, Baldwin makes completely clear in this essay that he understands the rage. But it's most acute in his description of that night where he leaves the American diner, blind with fury, and goes to the place where he may well get killed because he can't stop himself. And the other line in this essay that arrests the reader in his or her tracks is the one where he describes himself sitting at that table in that restaurant 
when the white waitress comes over and seeing the fear in her eyes, how completely terrified she is of him. And he writes, I quote, I felt that if she found a black man so frightening, I would make her fright worthwhile. And he throws a jug at her head, which if it had hit her, might well have killed her. And he expresses in this essay the ways in which the rage that runs through him in response to the rage of the people who have power over him leads him down a path towards violence. It is a deeply ambivalent relationship with the possibilities of male violence in this essay. The second difference is about anger. If there's an arc to the story that Baldwin tells, it's from hating his father, which is more or less how he describes it at the beginning of the essay. And I should say this is all done in an incredibly condensed way. These multiple journeys away from home, back to home, the journey from his New York experience to his New Jersey experience and back to Harlem, the journey from the hospital to the church to the cemetery. It's all done in an extraordinarily condensed way, beautiful but condensed. But if there is an arc to that story, it is from the hatred at the beginning to a determination at the end, as he says it, to put hatred aside. And that includes hating his father, but also a kind of wider hatred. He says he comes to understand that to hate and to be driven by hate in the end corrodes everything. It corrodes the people that you hate, but it also corrodes you yourself. And that there will always be a temptation in American life as one of the people who is oppressed by American hierarchies of power to hate your oppressors. And Baldwin says, as best he can, that he is beginning as a 19-year-old man, as described by a 30-year-old man, to understand not just the temptations, but the perils of being subsumed by hate. But hate is not the same as anger. You can put hatred aside, but that doesn't mean that you are going to become less angry. And this is the other difference, I think, with Virginia Woolf. In her essay, Woolf describes her experience in a much, much more genteel setting, the reading room of the British Library, when she encounters the rage of the professors, as she calls it. Why are the professors so angry? And when she reads these books by men, privileged men, saying who women are, what women want, what it means to be a woman, and she realises that they're angry about this, it makes her furious. And she responds to their anger with white fury of her own. As she leaves the reading room of the British Library, she is speechless with rage about these men not only telling her what it means to be a woman, but being angry about it. And then she says the anger dissipates. It dissipates on her journey, more or less, from the British Library to a cafe to have a sandwich. And of course, in her cafe, when she goes in for a sandwich and a cup of coffee, she is served. If she had gone from the British Library to a cafe and sat down and have a man come over and say, we don't serve women here, it might have been a different experience but it isn't, and her anger dissipates. And she realises very quickly there is no point in responding to the anger with anger, and she responds to it in a different way, including ultimately with ridicule. She comes to see these professors, these men writing about women, as ridiculous, as absurd. She can quite quickly go from being angry with them to laughing at them, which is one of the reasons why 
A Room of One's Own is a really funny essay. It's very funny about men. Baldwin doesn't have any of those responses or indeed any of those experiences, not least because he does not go to the cafe where they will serve him. Ridicule is not appropriate here to ridicule the American South, to ridicule the white policeman. It's too dangerous. And also the scale of it is wrong. There is nothing in Baldwin's essay that suggests that the way out of anger is ridicule. In fact, I think there isn't really anything in Baldwin's essay that looks for a way out of anger. It's looking for a way out of hatred, because hatred destroys everything. But anger is a kind of fuel. And it's not the case, by the end of the essay, that Baldwin is less angry. Not less angry as he describes his 19-year-old self. Not, I think, less angry as his 30-year-old self. And then in the edition that I read, it included an essay that Baldwin wrote towards the end of his life, in his 60s, looking back on his 30-year-old self, looking back on his 19-year-old self. And towards the end of his life, there is no sense that Baldwin is less angry. He is still angry because he still thinks the things that he describes are acutely present 30 years later. White power and the anger that goes with white power. Not in a white world, because as he says 30 years after the essay was written, this is never a white world. This is never a world in which whites are the majority. Non-whites are always the majority in our world, in the globe. But America has created this artificial island of white power in a non-white world and is angrily defending it. And it's still angrily defending it under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And in the face of that anger, Baldwin is just as angry. He describes his life in terms that are completely reminiscent of Virginia Woolf's understanding of the modern predicament. He says that in this essay, Notes of a Native Son, what he is trying to do is show the ways in which we are all the products of our histories and our circumstances and social forces beyond our control and how we are all also all of us so much more than that. But his experience of that struggle to be an individual in a world where you are shaped by your circumstances has not left him, by the end of his life, any less angry. Virginia Woolf's anger, for better or for worse, dissipates. Baldwin's anger doesn't. To find out more about this podcast, please follow us on Twitter at PPFIdeas. Tomorrow, it's day eight in the 12 Days of Christmas essay series, and my subject is Susan Sontag's essay, Against Interpretation. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.